I'm Harriet Hendel, and this is Pursuing Justice. We've been speaking to members of a group called Witness to Innocence for the last two programs. This is an organization founded by Sister Helen Prejean, who was portrayed in a movie called Dead Man Walking a number of years ago. Sister Helen has been a fierce opponent of the death penalty for decades. Randall Paget is our guest today, and he was one of the founding members of this group way back in 2005. Let's listen to his story. It's good to have you join us today, Randall. Thank you so much. How did your involvement begin with Witness to Innocence? Well, after I got exonerated, uh, someone contacted me, I guess through my attorney, and said a group of people were meeting either down in Florida or Georgia about organizing this this thing called Witness Innocence. We didn't have a name then. Oh. And, okay. uh, so I went down there, and they were maybe 12, 15 people there. And uh, and then we got the ball rolling from there. Our sister Helen was there, her and uh, Ray Crone. I see. And, and did you know um, what the organization wanted to accomplish by forming a group like this? Yes, and uh, I was a little apprehensive about joining because uh, every time I tell my story, it brings up bad feelings and that I'd like to just get rid of, but I can't do that. But uh, I tell my story, even though it does cause me some pain, uh, the reason I tell it is if I can get some prospective juror to uh, not believe as I did, I was very naive about the justice system, but if I can get someone who maybe is sitting on a jury one day and doesn't just believe what the prosecution says, but make them show them the facts, that, that's my intent. There's, uh, I used to think that, uh, you know, I was innocent uh, I'd be all right, but that wasn't the case. I got sentenced to the electric chair for something I didn't do, and uh, it's I found out it's easy as pie to get convicted of something you didn't do, and once you are convicted, it's extremely difficult to get anybody to believe otherwise. That is true. So that, that that's why I do it. Well, that's a great reason. Um, you are from Alabama. Explain yes. your your case of wrongful conviction to our listeners. Okay, I grew up out in the countryside, had good parents, uh, never had any dealings with law enforcement before in my life. Uh, was married, had two kids, and uh, ended up, I had an extramarital affair and uh, wife and I had separated. Would well, we'd been separated about I don't know three or four months, and uh, she got she got killed. She got stabbed forty something times, they said, and uh, oh. Oh. Then, and then raped after she was dead. 
Hmm. Well, the police, I was talking to them every day after my wife, her name was Kathy, by the way, after she got killed. And because I was wanting them to find out who done that, but they told me right off the bat, you know, well, the spouse is the first person we look at. You know, we got to make sure it ain't you. So I did everything they asked. This was in 1990 when uh, DNA was brand new around here anyways. So they wanted a blood sample to do a DNA test. They said, we can find out if that's your semen at the crime scene. You know? So I said, certainly, let's do that quick because I wanted them to leave me alone and start looking for the real criminal. Well, back then, it took 12 weeks to get a DNA test done. Mm. And uh, I'm in a total nightmare. Uh, I can't wait until that test comes back. So police will leave me alone and start looking in the right place. Well, when the test came back, the test says that was my semen found at the crime scene. Hmm. which is impossible. So they arrested me, took me to jail, and uh, I was in jail about three days, I guess, and I, I got out on bond. Never had a need of a lawyer before, but I went and got one. He, he come pretty highly rec recommended. So I'm telling him some stuff that I'd heard from other people uh, about who I thought might have committed the crime and a bunch of circumstantial stuff. And he said, well, we can't point the finger at nobody else. That'll Someone else, that'll, that'll make you look bad. And so I just trusted him because I thought he knew what he was doing. And But I told him, I said, well, the finger's pointed in the wrong place now. Anyways, we decided we we're going to do our own DNA test. So we had to do this uh, preliminary blood work, uh, type ABO, a PGM test, and some other kind of blood work. Oh, and by the way, I've got to mention, uh, the police took a blood sample from another suspect also. But they decided to do the DNA test on what they said was my blood. Mm -hmm. So anyways, when we did the preliminary test, the guy at the lab says, well, there's no need to do a DNA test. I can testify that that's not your blood that the DNA test was done on hmm. because your blood has a PGM. And don't quote me on these numbers. I'm just using numbers for distinction. I don't remember the exact numbers. But your blood has a PGM of 2-1. Uh, the blood that the DNA test was done on has a PGM of 2-2. Two two. So, well, okay. So it took about a year and a half, I guess, before trial came around. And about two weeks before trial, the guy at the lab who had did my blood testing came down with some terminal illness and couldn't come testify. Hmm. Well, my attorney asked for a continuation on the the trial, but that was denied. So we went to trial. We had the guy's reports, but we didn't have the guy. Well, the prosecution had uh, three or four 
DNA experts. New York, Louisiana, I don't know where else. Anyways, the trial lasted about six days, six or seven days. But their whole presentation was these DNA experts explaining how DNA worked. Mm-hmm. And it was way over anybody's head in the courtroom, okay. including the including the judge. Matter of fact, I saw jurors sleeping while that was going on, while they was trying to explain that scientific stuff. So after the DNA experts had had went home, we found out that the state had did another blood test uh, and came up with the same reading that we, we had, which was different from their first initial reading. And uh, they had hid that from us. So we we asked the judge for a mistrial because they we didn't get to cross-examine the DNA experts. And uh, in a sidebar, he says, well, if he gets convicted, we'll be trying this again because that's a Brady violation. But uh, I want to hear what the jury says, you know. So anyways... We had the uh, the state serologist on the stand, and I remember my lawyer asking, says, you tested Mr. Padgett's blood on such and such day, and it tested 2-1. You tested it two weeks ago, and it tested 2-2. He said, is that someone else's blood? He said, well, well. He said, is that a different bud? Well, well. He said, what are you trying to say? Are you trying to say Mr. Padgett's blood type has changed? Hmm. And the guy said, well, it's been reported that that can happen. And uh, he said, how long have you been doing this kind of work? And he said, 25 years. Well, have you ever seen this happen before? And he says, no. But you're saying it happened in this case. And he says, yes. Well, when that came out, I had a sigh of relief. I thought, there's there's no way I'm, I'm going to get convicted. Mm-hmm. But uh, that ain't the way it went. I got convicted. And I don't know why, unless the jury, there were, I think there were eight. No, there were ten women on the jury. Ten unless women. they were mad at me because I had had an affair. I don't know. But after that testimony about the blood, I didn't think I'd get convicted. But I did. And then the jury, we had a little mini trial about the sentence. The The jury recommended a life without parole sentence. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the judge in Alabama could override that and and give me the electric chair, which is what he did. Oh, that so, should not happen that a judge can override a jury's decision. But it happened. Well, that's, it's just been... It's just been a few years ago that they changed that, but mm-hmm. for years and years they could in Alabama. But anyways, I got down to death row, and man, that was like something totally foreign to me, and uh, like being on a different planet, and uh, felt all alone, and everybody thought I had done this horrible thing, and uh, that was a, a, a tough time for me. But I did win 
my appeal on the very first step because of that Brady violation. And the Brady violation is that the prosecution has to turn, both sides have to turn over information so that everything is transparent and clear. No hiding of uh, critical uh, exculpatory evidence. And they did not do that. So in a sense, you were lucky that they were in violation because that opened up the door. Yeah, that, that, that's what I tell people sometimes. If, if the prosecution had not have did that second test, mm-hmm. uh, I'd, I'd probably be be dead now. I think so. Because because they wouldn't have they wouldn't have withheld that if they hadn't have did it, and then uh, I wouldn't have had a case for appeal. That's right. But and, but anyhow, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, after I won my appeal, they sent me back to the county jail. I stayed down on death row for a little over three years. Uh, sent me back to county jail, and I had to stay in the county jail for a little over two years, waiting on a trial. Mm. So when I when I went to trial, uh, I got acquitted, found not guilty. Uh, and and my, my case is is real complicated complicated to this day I don't know if uh, the states I, I, I don't know about those blood tests uh, what I do know is if that DNA is correct I know had who had to uh, kill my wife or been involved is the woman I was having an affair with matter of fact uh, my lawyer had her on the stand at that second trial and he asked her, how did Mr. Paget's semen get at the crime scene? And she says, well, it must have came from me. But anyhow, they have never uh, looked for anybody else. They haven't uh, hadn't arrested anybody for the crime. I think for two reasons. Uh, it's a very small town here, population of about 8,000. I think one reason is they don't want to admit they made that big of a mistake. Right. The second reason, Alabama has a, uh, they call it a compensation law, but I don't know if anybody's ever been compensated, but I've got a compensation law. If you've been wrongfully convicted, uh, they're supposed to give you $50,000 for every year you were incarcerated. But they, the, the only way you're eligible is if uh, the indictment is dismissed on the grounds of factual innocence. Mm-hmm. You have to prove a negative. Like, how are you going to prove you did not go to the hard sto- hardware store and buy a hammer last Thursday? Mm-hmm. You might could prove you might could prove you did if you had the receipt, but sure. you can't prove you didn't. But you didn't, right, right. So, so it left you out. But as you said, you you don't know anyone who's been compensated anyway in Alabama. For Correct. There, there was there was not under that law right. before they before they made the law. I know of one person who was compensated. That was through a special bill through the legislature. I see. So no, no chance. 
and and how what what has it been like in terms of your readjustment to uh, the the world after you came out of uh, of death row? Well, I'm still adjusting. It's been over thirty years. <laughs> uh, Long time. When before I was arrested, I had uh, had a good job. Had a home paid for. Uh, had thirty-two acres of land. Well, I lost my job, of course. Lost all. Uh, I had to sell my home and, and land to pay legal fees. Mm. Uh, came out of prison at 47 years old without a penny, uh, no home to live in. Luckily, my mom was still alive. My father died while I was in there, but I moved in with mom, uh, and it's very difficult to get a job. People, I think, employers look at look at you and say, well, he, even though he was exonerated, you know, we can get somebody that didn't go yeah. through all of that death of row stuff and be be safer, you know. Let's just stay away from this dude. Sure. Uh, but it's been it's been tough, financially especially. Uh, I still have nightmares, uh, not as frequently as I used to when I first got out, but even after all these years, I'll still have Maybe once a month, maybe every other month, but I'll have a bad nightmare about being sitting in the courtroom yeah. or being down there on death row, one or the other. Sure. And and financially, how have you supported yourself all the all these years? Well, I had uh, I had a little. Uh, Salvage grocery store. I don't know if you know what that is. There's a few of them around here, but no, I, I rented a, rented a little building, and there was a place where you could go. This guy got all the groceries from a these large grocery chains out of their warehouse. Maybe a, a case of beans, and it has a couple of bent cans. They would discard the whole case, uh, and some stuff were. The expiration date was real near or maybe expired. And I would buy that and then sell it probably for half price of what it would cost in uh, a real grocery store. Uh, And I I barely made it on that until Mm. Witness to Innocence hired me as a peer specialist several years ago. And uh, so anyways, uh, they're a nonprofit organization, but they do have uh, paid positions, and uh, I'm one of those. And uh, if it hadn't been for that, I don't know if I'd be surviving as well as I am. But. That's great. Well, tell us about your role as a peer specialist. What What does that mean? Well... What what I do, I have uh, me and one other guy in the organization are peer specialists. And and we have a list of uh, our members who are exonerated death row row people. I think there's there's probably about 
35, 40 of us all total. Mm. But he has a list of members, and I have a list of members. And we just stay in contact with them. Like, I've, and, and try to help them any way we can. Maybe get them a social worker if need be. And sometimes uh, some are getting evicted out of their homes, and uh, Witness to Innocence has a, a little funds that they can help with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they got medical expenses that Witness to Innocence can help with. Uh, but mainly, these guys want to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about. We're, sure. we're, we're kind of like a family. Uh, we've been together so long. Uh, I got one guy that probably calls me five times a week just, just to talk. Really? He, he, he lives by himself, uh, but he, he calls just to talk. But his moral support, I guess, is the, sure. the biggest thing, the biggest part of my job. Uh, there have been instances where uh, they have an emergency. Maybe uh, a storm tears someone's house up, or they they get and don't have uh, insurance, or or they get. We've had people get evicted from their homes, lose their jobs, and, and uh, we've been able to help them uh, pay their rent, uh, find a place to live, and. Uh, some of them, well, a lot of us has PTSD. Uh, I would think so. And we, we've gotten some of them some uh, social workers to, to help with that, uh, some counseling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, I guess the main thing is, is just more support because I can't, I can't tell you. <laughs> about all the feelings I've had. I, I guess I don't express myself so well about the whole ordeal, and, and especially prison. But another member of Witness to Innocence who I know has had the same feelings I've had, it, It's I can talk to that guy, and that That's guy right. can talk to me. Sure. That, that, there's no uh, no price you can put on that kind of support. And, and you know what it's like, and the person calling you knows what it was like. So right. that's, that's right. A, gift, a, a tremendous gift that you give the members of Witness to Innocence. And given Witness to Innocence is a nonprofit, I would, anyone listening, if you are moved by the stories that you have heard today, I would just encourage you to send a donation. Uh, you can find them online on just under Witness to Innocence, and they are located in Philadelphia. So uh, I'm sure they have a way that you can donate. So um, I guess funding-wise, funding, funding wise, they, they can always use a donation. Wouldn't you say that, Randall? Uh, sure, sure. <laughs> right. and that, uh, that website is... Uh, www.witnesstoinnocence.org. Dot org. Right, right. That's right. Okay. Well, that's so. The, uh, it's it's great that they have a paid position for you as the peer specialist. How how long have you been doing that role? Uh, about five five years now, I think. 
Oh, that's terrific. Yeah, and it was just, I guess God sent me that just in time because my little store, uh, there was a, a big grocery store, Aldi's. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Chain yeah. had moved, moved in just about a mile down the road from me. Uh-huh. And my business after that happened had just went down to nothing. Wow. And uh, so I had already had plans to just shut my little store down when this opportunity with Witness Innocence came up and uh, saved Good me. Good timing. Well, yeah. we, are, we are almost out of time today, and it's been a, a pleasure to speak with you today about your uh, involvement in Witness to Innocence, your story uh, about being wrongfully convicted, and I hope that we are educating the uh, listeners and the public about the miscarriages of justice that go on all the time. And the, the goal is to stop that from happening. So thank you, Randall, yeah. for your time today and sharing your story. I do appreciate it. And, and Could I say I, one other thing. Yes, one other thing. Quickly, yes. If you go ahead. If, if you go to our website, You'll see our members who have been on death row and a and a little maybe a little short story about all the members. So there's right. there's a good, good bit idea. of stuff on our website. Good idea. It's a great website. I've been on there. Yes, and please tune in next time for our final guest uh, from Witness to Innocence. And uh, I I hope that it's a uh, Gary Drinkard. And uh, please join us next time for Pursuing Justice. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.